morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 10. I'm sorry, it doesn't come from chapter 10. Chapter 11, um, the end of chapter 11 and then chapter 12 as well. So if you would mind turning in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 11. You can find that on page 575. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew kind of right in front of you. And you can find our passage on page 575. <clears throat> Actually, <laughs> having some trouble this morning. It's on page 576 um, because we're actually starting in verse 10. So Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10 through Isaiah chapter 12, verse 6. And would you mind standing with me in honor of God's word? In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. And those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue, or the gulf, of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so we have been studying through the book of Isaiah. If you're visiting with us this morning or um, 
Maybe you haven't been here for a while, um, walking through the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, and um, I'm sure as I read through that passage, if you're not familiar with Isaiah, you think, man, what is going on here? What are all these words? I don't know. These places will just hang in there. Hopefully, um, it will make sense by the time we're done. Um, if you read Shakespeare and you're not familiar with that time, time frame in history, you're probably lost as well. You learn a little bit about that time period, learn a little bit about the language that was used and some of the metaphors and, and figures of speech, and then all of a sudden those plays come to life. So the same thing happens with the Bible. So as, before we get into the text here, I want you to just think about a word that is used in a variety of contexts in our world, although we probably don't use it very often, but the word rally. Okay, it's a noun, it's a verb, fairly obvious that both meanings are, uses are related. Okay, so people can rally to a rally, to rally for a cause. Okay, so I've used it a couple different ways there. Have you ever been part of a, a rally of some sort or other? Um, maybe you have negative connotations with rallies. I have some negative connotations with rallies. Um, so that could be political, could be a protest, and again, you can have positive, negative connotations there. Maybe you have some positive connotations along the political rally side. Maybe you have positive connotations because you like cars and you like the rally racing. Okay, so there's that kind of rally. There's pep rallies, high school pep rallies. Anybody love those? You don't have to show your hand. Um, in sports, if you're down, what do you want to do? You want to get a rally started. You might, you know, turn your hat upside down, you know, all the superstition in the sporting world. Um, anyway, depending on how you're invested, you might be happy if the stock market rallied the other day. So rally can also have military connotations in our world. Rally the troops. Rally to the flag. Okay, so what kinds of things typically happen at rallies or during a rally? Adrenaline oftentimes gets pumping, right? Um, people get pumped up, they get excited at rallies. So it's a personal thing, but also rallies are a social thing, right? There's like a, a dynamic of esprit de corps, like this group dynamic that's going. It's a common cause, we're gathering together for something, so if it's something you really believe in, then you actually tend to want to draw other people into that rally. You want to rally others into that cause, right? So there's centripetal force, right? Seeking the center um, to rallies. They draw people in. So I think all of those connotations might serve us a little bit as we think about our text um, for the morning. So go ahead and just file that away for just a bit and we'll come back to it at the end. So let's begin by looking at Isaiah 11:10 again. And we're going to walk through our passage. There's an outline in your bulletin, um, but you can also see the points up on the screen. I think we're going to have slides there as well. So bulletin insert looks like that if you want to take any notes there. So Isaiah chapter 11 Verse 10, first point, in that day. In that day, the root of Jesse, 
who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. Okay, so in that day is repeated there. You see it twice. Well, we probably need to get some bearings here. What day are we talking about? What is Isaiah talking about here? When is this going to happen? I mean, we're going to talk about what is going to happen, but we need to know when. Has it already happened? What we need to do, as we've talked about before, we need to go through Palestine in order to get to Wilmington and understand how this text applies to us. So when is this going to happen, the stuff that happens in that day that Isaiah refers to? Well, that language of in that day oftentimes in the Bible refers to the day of the Lord. Okay, which is maybe another expression you're not familiar with. But what happens on the day of the Lord typically is judgment and deliverance. God shows up. And he rescues his people, which typically means it means judgment on his enemies. Okay, so for instance, when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, it was like a day of the Lord when he redeemed them out of Egypt because He rescued his people, and he judged the Egyptians. See it? Both things happen on the same day, as it were. Okay, And sometimes day can refer to a period. But anyway, so what would Isaiah's contemporaries have thought about the day of the Lord, about this in that day thing that Isaiah is talking about? Well, let's look at the immediate context here. Do you remember... The first nine verses from Isaiah 11, we looked at them before Easter because we've been out of Isaiah for um, a little while here. But Isaiah 11, 1 to 9, let me just read it briefly here. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots. Okay, so Jesse was David's dad, so this is a king that's going to rise up. Someone like King David. He's going to bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He's going to be this great leader. He's going to be a wise judge. He's going to be an able military commander type person. He's going to be like a king. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, because that's obviously limited with judges of the earth. Oftentimes, evidence goes unnoticed. There's ignorance that goes into decisions. This judge is going he's, he's to know everything. He's going to decide always with righteousness. He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. So his word is powerful to bring judgment. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. He can just say the word. And it's done. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. So here's this this poetic picture of what it's going to look like when this king is reigning. Man, everything is made new. All the violence is gone. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And the little child shall lead them. No more threats. The cow and the bear shall graze. They would typically, you know, the cow would be prey for the bear. 
Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So, when's all that going to happen? Well, it happens on the day of the Lord, in that day. And he just got done saying all that stuff in verses 1 to 9. And again, it's a day of judgment and salvation. So there's this beautiful picture of peace, but there's also striking the earth with the rod of his mouth and killing the wicked. So there's judgment as well. Okay? So you can see how the people in Isaiah's day, and even the people in Jesus' day, thought that this would all happen in, at once. So how does Isaiah unpack what happens on this day? He says, in that day, verse 10 now, again, the root of Jesse, which is really interesting, remember back to verse 1 of chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot. So this person is both the root of Jesse and the shoot of Jesse. How can that be? That's crazy. Who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. So there's going to be this signal. What in the world is that all about? Well, that word can refer to a few different things. A banner or a flag, okay, usually on a pole, like rallying people. So it can be a military um, signal, like the banners, you know, in ancient warfare, they would have these banners that represented their, their kingdom, okay? So, there's actually, the last time this word was used in Isaiah, there was ominous connotations with it. If you flip back to Isaiah 5, verse 26, this is the only time this word's been used so far. It's used more after chapter 11, but look at verse 5. 26, this is in the context where Isaiah is saying, you know, judgment is coming because you guys have been so rebellious and you've rejected the Lord. And here's what's going to happen. The Lord is going to raise a signal, same word, for, for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly, speedily they come. In other words, he's going to raise up these other nations to judge you. He's going to just say, come on. So it's like he's the commander, and he whistles for his troops, come on, and do my work of judgment. So that was kind of scary for the people of God to know the Lord is the commander of the armies of heaven and earth, and he can whistle for a pagan nation, the superpower of the day, Assyria, and command them at will to come and do his bidding. Okay, But in this case, here... In chapter 11, it's clearly a king rallying people to his rule, okay, to, to swear allegiance to him, to find rest and protection and blessing in his kingdom, okay? So the Lord is going to, there's going to be this king, the root of Jesse, shall stand as a signal for the peoples, and of him the nations will seek him. They'll, they'll seek him in his resting place, the kingdom that he sets up, is going to be glorious, okay? And then it says that the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. Well, 
What do you think the first time referred to? When was the first time the Lord extended his hand? If you're familiar with the story of the Bible and how things have unfolded so far. Anybody? Exodus. Okay? That was the single most paradigm-shaping event of deliverance in the Old Testament. Listen to Exodus 3.20. He said, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. Remember the plagues? And after that, Pharaoh will let you go. I'll bring my people out. So judgment and deliverance. And here the Lord's going to do that again. He's going to recover the remnant of his people, not just from Egypt this time. Look how verse 11 goes on. From Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath. You don't have to know where these places are. But basically, that's just a summary of all the known world at the time. The first two, Assyria and Egypt, are like the two superpowers of the time. Egypt, actually it would be like this for you. Um, Egypt was to the south and east. Israel's in here. And to the north and west. Is that right? North and east. Sorry. South and west. Um, Whatever. You see what I'm saying, okay? Um, Would be Assyria, north and east. Yep. So what happens in that day? Let's read the rest of chapter 11. What happens in that day? There's a signal and a second exodus. We've alluded to this, but we need to see it unpacked. Okay? So, verse 12. He will raise a signal, same word as in verse 10, for the nations, and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Okay? So in that day, remember this is all happening in that day, the day of the Lord, here's what's going to happen. The Lord is going to raise a signal for the nations. Huh. So it's international in scope. He's going to assemble the banished. He's going to bring them back home. He's going to gather the dispersed from the four corners of the earth. So people will come to and be rallied from the ends of the earth when God raises this signal. Look at verse 13. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. Those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. That, I know, is confusing probably, but you remember after Solomon, the kingdom of God was split into two, the northern and the southern kingdoms. So Ephraim is a reference to the northern kingdom, Judah to the southern, and they were at odds with each other. So the people of God are fighting each other. So this is language of the northern and southern kingdoms, the people of God being reunified. In other words, in that day, there's going to be one people of God. That's what happens when God raises this signal. He gives this signal. So remember how Israelites, they plundered the Egyptians when they were led out of Egypt? Remember how that happened? Well, again, in that day, there's going to be more plundering. Look at verse 14. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of of the Philistines in the west, and together, see, unified people of God again, they shall plunder the people of the east, they shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites. Again, we may not understand all that geography, but the point is, they had all these enemies around them that had taken their land, and they were oppressed and threatened, and now they're going to be able to expand again, and they're going to have a home and a place, okay? So we shouldn't think about material plundering here. We'll have to come back to that later if we have time. But at the very least, we should begin to think Exodus with all of its connotations. Just like out of Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians as they left. Well, look how the text continues. 
it makes it abundantly clear that the Exodus is supposed to be front and center in our minds. Verse 15, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue or the gulf of the Sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals. So just like he led the Israelites through the Red Sea, he's going to accomplish another exodus, a second exodus. It'll be dry, it'll be, in a sense, he'll pave the way, they won't even have to take their sandals off. Okay? And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. So what happens in that day? A signal is raised and a second exodus is accomplished. Okay, see all that exodus language? Now again, what would they have expected the signal to be? We're still in Palestine. Don't worry, we're getting to Wilmington. Hang in there, okay? I mean, come on, we're talking about the king of heaven here. You remember back in Isaiah 6? Isaiah had this vision of the king of kings. He's high and exalted, and the mere hem of his robe fills the temple. This is the Lord of hosts. He's the commander of the armies of heaven and earth. So what were their expectations? For a king to come and rally the troops, you know, raise the banner, rally the troops, throw down all the political oppressors, set up the kingdom, literally, physically, all at once. That's what they're expecting. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. You know, when the kingdom comes, man, there's lion laying laying down with the lamb. But what was God's plan? This is the unfolding of the plan of redemption. God's plan was the wisdom and power of the cross. That's the signal, folks. That's the signal that God's going to raise. It's the King of kings and Lord of lords high and lifted up on a pole. It's not a flag waving. It's his son hanging. Isaiah 52, 13. If we keep going in the story of Isaiah, behold my servant, referring to Jesus, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Isn't that ironic? We think, all right, victory. Rather, he's going to be defeated. He's going to die in our place so that we can be rescued. John 12, 32 says, And I, Jesus speaking, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When the, when the signal is raised, people will rally to the signal, okay, to the king. So that's the surprise. That's the shocker. The king is going to rally the world to him by dying on a pole. Rather than running up a military banner, fighting against his enemies, well, guess what? We'd all be in trouble. If God showed up and said, down with all my enemies, we're all in trouble because of our sin. But instead, he died for his enemies like you and me, so that the gospel of the kingdom could be the gospel of peace to you and me. You can have peace with God. You can be reconciled to God. I'm going to bridge that gap. I'm going to die for you so that you don't have to die for your own sins. So the reconciliation, the forgiveness, the restoration to God, it's possible because of 
Jesus' death. Okay? When he was raised up on the cross, this signal, God accomplished that second exodus, that better exodus. Again, think, the exodus was the paradigm event for salvation, for deliverance in the Old Testament, in the minds of the Jews. And actually, it still is if they don't accept Jesus as their Messiah. So imagine yourself as an Israelite, and you're in Egypt, and you are under the slavery of a harsh master, Pharaoh, this strong man, strong king. And so you're enslaved, you're not free, forced labor. Remember, sons getting, you know, you got you to kill your sons, Moses going into the basket to try to save his life. I mean, just think about the effects of this slavery, the oppressiveness. The, remember the plagues then? God shows up, day of the Lord plagues, and the Passover lamb, which is obviously a foreshadowing of Jesus. Remember getting backed, like after he brought them out, he backed them into the corner at the Red Sea. It seemed like a cruel joke. Oh, you just bring us out to kill us? Here comes Pharaoh's army after them to crush them. And God says, nope. And he comes in between with the cloud. And then he parts the waters and his people walk through on dry ground. They don't even have to take their sandals off. Their sandals aren't going to stick in the mud. And then they get through. The soldiers come flying after them. And God shows up again. He fights for his people, brings the water back, and wipes out the enemies. And you know what happened when they were on the other shore? Exodus 15, what happens? How do they respond? They sing a song of deliverance. We'll get there in a minute. So do you see the parallels between the first Exodus and the second Exodus? Every human being is born bent and broken, enslaved to sin. And you know what? Like we looked at last week in Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air, we're following him whether we know it or not. He's the strong man. He's the God of this world that enslaves us in the domain of darkness. So even worse than Egypt, it's the domain of darkness. Rather than Pharaoh, even worse than Pharaoh, it's Satan. We were dead, enslaved in the domain of darkness. But then because of Jesus, because of the, the pull, the signal, Jesus hung on the cross, he died so that we could be set free, so that we could be redeemed, we could be rescued. So listen to the way Paul prays in Colossians 1. The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, a second exodus, the forgiveness of sins. Or that text that was read earlier from 1 Peter 2, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. That's where you used to be, into his marvelous light. And now, what this king is doing is he is recovering. He is gathering a remnant, his people, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The Lord has extended his hand a second time to recover the remnant, to assemble, to gather those that have been banished 
and dispersed to bring them home to himself. Just like Adam and Eve were, had, they were sent out of the garden because of their sin. Well, in Christ, we can be brought home. We can be brought back and reconciled to God. Again, the Jews expected it to be all at once. And you can see why. The beginning of chapter 11. But it happens in stages, doesn't it? Do you see that? So what happened was, this coming of the kingdom, when God shows up, it didn't come all at once. It was inaugurated. It was begun in Jesus' incarnation and life and death and resurrection. And now, his kingdom is extending. It's growing. It's drawing people in from every tongue and tribe and people and nation through the church and its mission. And one day, the kingdom will come in its fullness when Jesus returns. The consummation, the return of Christ, when everything will be made new, like chapter 11, wolf lying down with a lamb, little child can take a lion for a walk, So the kingdom has come, it is coming, and it will come. So this is what happens in that day. We're living in that day. You see? That day started, it's continuing, and one day it will come to its final fullness. So we've come from slavery to freedom, from wrath to comfort, from displacement to home. If you know Christ, this is your experience. From unrest and anxiety and threats to a resting place that's glorious in Christ. From banished to welcome to brought back. No more enemies, no more oppressors, no more oppression. Okay? So in light of all this grace, this love, this mercy that God has extended by raising the signal, by rescuing us in this great second exodus event, what shall we say to these things? Shall we yawn? Shall we be bored? I mean, we're talking slavery, folks. Like, do you, do you realize how enslaved? Do you realize that apart from the grace of God, if you, di- like, we're not playing with a net here. You die, you're, it's over. Like, there really is hell and heaven. There really is a judge of all the earth. If he didn't provide a solution, if he didn't provide a rescue and a redeemer, we are toast. That's exactly where you were until he plucked you out. Oh, Man, the grace of rescue and redemption. And have you felt recently, do you remember, maybe it's too far back there, maybe you need to jog your memory and think, who was I prior to Christ pouring out his grace on me and rescuing me? And you know what? We keep needing rescue because we keep wandering back to Egypt at times. So what shall we say to these things? Shall we be bored, indifferent, apathetic, I hope that you would say, no, and when that is where our heart is at, I hope we make war with that kind of apathy and coldness. Look at how the text leads us to respond. This is how we ought to respond to the grace of the gospel of redemption from our deepest slavery, slavery to sin. 12.1, you will say in that day, here's that reference again, Here's what happens when the day of the Lord shows up. See, judgment and deliverance on the day of the Lord, what happened? Where'd the judgment fall? 
It fell on Jesus. <laughs> so the deliverance could fall on you. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, I deserve your wrath, I deserve your judgment, I deserve your condemnation, I'm guilty. Your anger turned away. Why did he send Jesus? So that he could comfort us. So that he could love us and accept us and embrace us and comfort us. Verse 2, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. Again, do you know where that language comes from? It comes from the song after the Exodus. Flip back to Exodus 15. When they were delivered out of the, like when they made it through the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his armies were wiped away, Look at the song of Moses, 15, 1 and 2. We could go further, but we'll just read those two verses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song. This is a redemption song. Saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Exact same words as in Isaiah chapter 12. Then look at verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells. There's not just one. We're talking about God. He's lavish in his life-giving resources. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. God's not the desert. He's the fountain of living waters. That's the deceitfulness of sin is we think God is boring and dry. And what's really exciting is all these God substitutes. No. What, is I, what does Jeremiah say? These people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Get out of the cistern and drink at the fountain. You, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. He's the fountain of living waters. Yeah, we live in a wilderness, but it's the world and sin that is a burning desert it's the things that compete with God as our joy and satisfaction and delight and deliverance. It's those things that are the salt water that dehydrate us. The stuff that we run to when we self-medicate in place of God doesn't work. Salt water Looks like it's water. Looks like it'll quench your thirst. It'll actually kill you. God is the fountain. The gospel is the river of God's delight and love. So I remember John Piper saying this. It was so profound and helpful for me. He's commenting on God being the fountain of living waters there in Jeremiah 2. How do you honor a fountain? Do you take some of your own water from you know, and, and pour it in. Oh, great fountain. Let me give you some of my water. Well, that's dumb. What good is that going to do you? It's not going to honor the fountain. Drop your stupid bucket and get on your hands and knees and drink. And then say, ah. He said, that's worship. So 
With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. What did Jesus say? Anyone who comes to me will never ever hunger. Whoever believes in me will never ever thirst. Come drink. I've got real soul satisfaction for you. Look at verse 4. And you will say in that day, again, the day that the Lord comes and redeems you, give thanks to the Lord. See, we're going to talk to each other. We're going to say to each other, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Don't run to other gods. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. See, what was the the problem in Isaiah's day? They were looking to other nations to be their savior when they had political threats. Listen to this quote by one of the commentators, Oswald. Far from trusting in the nations for her own salvation, Israel is intended to be the vehicle whereby the nations can come to God. So they were trusting in the nations rather than saying, they can't save us, God can, and we should be going to the nations so that they can be saved too. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Echoing Exodus 15 again. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst. Zion is like a term for the city of God, okay? The people of God. Sing for joy, O inhabitant of the city of God, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So what happens in that day when you experience the power of the cross And this second exodus redemption, well, what wells up is thanks and praise and proclamation and singing and shouting. So it's it's the grace of the gospel that empowers this response. It's the grace of verse 3, with joy you'll draw water from the wells of salvation because God's providing it for you richly through Jesus, that will empower you to say, God's my salvation. I'm not going to be afraid. He's my strength, he's my song, he's my salvation. And you're going to say, I want to give thanks. You should give thanks. Let's call upon his name. Let's proclaim his name. Let's shout and sing for joy. So let's just draw this all to some applicational focus here at the end. And beloved, like church, Bethel, brothers and sisters, how often are we, are you, am I, gospel happy? I'm not talking about personality types here. Because Isaiah is not, God's not talking about personality types here. This is not just for the carefree kind of happy-go-lucky, happy-go-lucky types, okay? I'm talking about the, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The ladies know where that is in Nehemiah 8 from their recent study. This is rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice, Philippians 4. That same guy, Paul, said, I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The gospel is that good. Rejoice in the Lord always is not pious platitude like, oh man, you're obviously, you got your head in the clouds. You have no idea what I'm, what's going on with my feet on the earth, like over here in my patch. Oh, no, Paul wrote that. Okay, you might be able to say that to me, but Paul wrote that, and he is not one with some Pollyannish, rose-colored glasses, you know, thing. He knows life in a fallen world. 
He saw pain. He experienced pain and suffering and trials that I dare say none of us will ever face. And he's the one that wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. The gospel is that good. So where is our heart? Where's your heart? Where's my heart in regard to the gospel? The cross, the signal. Yes, he raised the signal. I love to look at the cross and all that it means. Redemption for me. Rescue from the domain of darkness. Oh, it still gives me chills. In both senses. Like, oh, I should be chilled to think of where I was and what I, how enslaved I was. And oh, that's scary. And chills, yes, like happy chills for the redemption. How sweet is the freedom from sin's oppressive slavery. And the fear of hell and the wrath of God. How often are you emotionally moved by the gospel? So how often are you gospel happy? You want to be more often gospel happy? I know I do. Well, this text is here for us. You know, some of us are pretty reserved. We're seldom moved. Except at like an Eagles game. Think about the rallies. Or a Phillies game. Or at the beach. Or at your favorite restaurant. Or when you're about to go to your favorite restaurant. Or maybe it's a car. Or maybe it's a motorcycle. Or maybe it's technology. Or maybe it's a house. Or maybe it's a recipe. Or whatever it is, fill in the blank. And the joy of those things are your strength. And you sure wish you could have more of that stuff so that you could be happy more often. What if instead we would rally to the cross? John Stott says this, the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. But we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall on us. Anybody want to get near to the cross so that we can get heated up? John Calvin, I love this quote. The church is the place where the gospel is preached. Like, just put you on notice, we're going to keep talking about this like until Jesus comes back. So if, if this message is getting old to you, I'm sorry. Um, I, hope it, I hope it becomes sweeter, not, you know, duller. So John Calvin, the church is the place where the gospel is preached. Gospel is good news. Good news makes people happy. Happy people sing. But then, too, unhappy people may sing to cheer themselves up. This is why we come to church. Well, that's not just, it's just not my personality. Oh, come on. I mean, do you need to think back maybe to that time when you found that she liked you or he liked you? You know, singing in the rain, whatever that guy's name is, Gene Kelly or whatever. Who would do that? Well, people do that actually. Because now I've just been delivered from lonely hell into relational heaven. And I'm singing in the rain. It's raining. People don't like the rain. Oh no, I'm singing in the rain because I was just delivered. 
Again, sporting. So I had jury duty on Wednesday, <laughs> and I brought all this. I brought some reading, you know, because I figured I might be sitting for a while. And unfortunately, they put televisions on, so I'm like, I went all the way in the back of the room. You can't have any electronic devices, so I couldn't like drown it out. And there's game shows on. I'm like, good grief, who watches this stuff? So I'm fighting, trying to, you know, stay focused on my reading, and. It's been a while since I've watched a game show. People freak out and shout and dance for joy over $1,000. I mean, okay, $1,000 is nice. Over a new television. Yeah, okay, the new car. Maybe you can understand that a little bit more. A hot tub. Come on. Like freaking out, happy, joyful, bouncing up and down, weird stuff, okay? Do we, do we ever respond to the gospel like that? C.J. Mahaney, cross our me- uh, Christ our mediator, he says, like nothing else, the gospel creates joy. It's both the source and the object of our joy. I'm just going to give you a few more quotes here. Are you someone who's consistently joyful and continually aware that the joy of the Lord is your strength, or do you normally appear to others to be someone who's burdened, busy, and easily bothered? We need to get, we need to rally to the cross, don't we? Let there never be a lengthy period of time where you aren't receiving inspiration, instruction related directly to the cross, since that's where we find a fresh, sustaining conviction of his personal love. Never be content with your current grasp of the gospel. This is all Mahaney in, in uh, either Christ our mediator or the cross-centered life. The gospel is life-permeating, world-altering, universe-changing truth. It has more facets than any diamond. Its depths man will never exhaust. So I hope that Sundays are like redemption rallies where we rally each other, where we gather together, common cause, Praise the Lord. I'm not talking about getting superficially frothed up and emotionally manipulated. That happens in churches, surely. And I understand the pushback to that. But I'm talking about this. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. Persons need not and ought not to set any bounds to their spiritual and gracious appetites. Rather, they ought to be endeavoring by all possible ways to inflame their desires and to obtain more spiritual pleasures. Our hungerings and thirstings after God and Jesus Christ and after holiness can't be too great for the value of these things, for they are things of infinite value. Therefore, endeavor to promote spiritual appetites by laying yourself in the way of allurement. He's talking like Isaiah 12. There is no such thing as excess in our taking of this spiritual food, or we could say living water spiritual drink. There's no such virtue as temperance in spiritual feasting or drinking. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. If that was his dev- advice, then you can understand uh, this is, um, this, this is a, what he said about his preaching ministry. I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as possible I, possibly I can provided that they are affected with nothing but truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. 
Okay, so the gospel ought to fill us up so that we respond like this. I'll give thanks to you, O Lord. You were angry with me, but your anger turned away because you actually absorbed your anger in your son on the cross that you might comfort me. You're my salvation. I will trust you. I want to trust you. I don't have to be afraid. You're my strength, my song, my salvation. Drink from the river of his delights. And let's give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name together. Make known his deeds among the people. Proclaim. This leads to mission, folks. It leads to mission. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Maybe if there's no mission happening, if we're, we're not speaking about Jesus, maybe that's real clear evidence that we need to fight for our joy in Jesus. So listen to how C.S. Lewis talks about fighting for joy. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify, and commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And then he gets realistic, and it's helpful. He says, meanwhile, of course, we are merely tuning our instruments. The tuning up of the orchestra can be itself delightful, but only to those who can, in some measure, however little, anticipate the symphony. The Jewish sacrifices and even our most sacred rites are like the tuning promise, not performance. Hence, like the tuning, they may have in them much duty and little delight or none, but the duty exists for the delight. That's what we're after. When we carry out our religious duties, we are like people digging channels in a waterless land in order that when at last the water comes, it may find them ready. I mean, for the most part, there are happy moments, even now when a trickle creeps along the dry beds, and happy souls to whom this happens often. So let's pray that the Lord would restore to us the joy of our salvation, that we would be people that rejoice in the Lord always. And the songs that we sing, we're going to sing a good one in response um, in just a moment called, there's a, there's a thing in your bulletin with the words and the music, Come People of the Risen King. Just appropriate response, singing along the themes of this passage. Um, but think about even the, the music that's in your life. The gospel can be the soundtrack of our day to fire our affections. Maybe you could share some of the music, the, the gospel-saturated songs that really help catch your heart so that you overflow with this kind of thanks and praise. So you can do that in your home groups um, this afternoon. And then let's see that this leads to mission. We need to get the word out. We need to rally people to the signal, to the cross, because they need Jesus. So bring them to Christianity Explored, or just invite them into your home and have dinner. Let's pray. Oh Lord, by the power of the gospel, this wonderful living water that can only is the only thing that can slake our soul's thirst would you so work in us that your kingdom would come more and more and more so that your name your great holy 
name as the redeeming God and the only fountain of living waters that your name would be hallowed. Do it for the sake of your great name. And we know that we only have a right to ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.